Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today. We're so excited that you're glad you're here, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Um, wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this, we're, we're just so happy that you found us and hope that this has been helpful and meaningful today. Um, before we jump in, we're going to wrap up this series we've been in, well, this iteration, this particular version of it called Bible Stories for Grownups. We've been looking at stories from the Hebrew Bible. We'll come back around and look at some other stories, maybe from the New Testament at some point next year. Um, but before we jump into that, I just want to acknowledge what a hard week it's been. A hard week and a bringing to end a hard summer and a ridiculously difficult, painful, hard year. Um, and a couple of things have happened this week that have made it even more difficult. Of course, the passing of RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is in a country that already we're, we've already been dealing with fear and uncertainty during this political season. Um, and now dealing with even more fear and uncertainty about what this is going to do, not, not just to us in this moment, not just to people who li are living right now, but to generations um, uh, of, of our um, descendants. What, what is this going to look like for them? Um, so we're, we're holding that grief and that fear and that uncertainty. And we're also um, just yes yesterday, um, so it's Thursday when I'm recording this, that it was announced that there wouldn't be no charges filed. Um, in the killing of Breonna Taylor. There was a charge filed against one of the officers for something else, but it had nothing to do with her, her death. And just holding that, knowing and holding that grief and holding that, that uncertainty and the fear and the pain and the anger, and we're right to feel all, all those things. We're right to feel angry. Um, also last night, two police officers were shot in Louisville during the protest. And it, it, there's just so much going on. There's so much pain. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much loss. There's so much grief. And it's exhausting. And I know that so many of you who are, who are here right now, you're exhausted and you have every reason to be exhausted. And we cannot really have justice without peace or peace without justice. We cannot. I mean, that's, that's, that's been on my mind so much. There cannot be true peace unless we deal with the injustices and inequities in our society. So today, we, we, we don't live sort of free of that. We don't live, um, and we're not going to pretend like this stuff isn't going on and isn't happening. Um, and, and actually, this week, I, I hope as we wrap up this series in the book of Daniel, that we'll come back around and maybe some of this, um, something, something we're going to talk about today maybe will be helpful, I hope. So just know that you're here, and your exhaustion, and your grief, and your fear, and your all that stuff matters, and you don't have to check it at the door. You, you, can, you can bring that in with you as a whole human being. Um, and we see you and we love you and we're with you. So as we think about the book of Daniel, um, uh, and I'm not going to just do one or two stories. I want to just sort of give an overview of the whole book. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Robert Alter, the renowned uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, says this about the book of Daniel. He says, Daniel is surely the most peculiar book in the Hebrew Bible. It's surely the most peculiar book in the Hebrew Bible, and I think he's right. Um, so before we jump into this peculiar book, I wanted to just start like we have some weeks with just fun facts. Um, in case you ever find yourself at a party and the conversation hits a lull and you don't want to go like talk about the weather because everybody does that, you can just break out some Hebrew Bible fun facts about the book of Daniel. Um, Daniel is considered the latest book of the Hebrew Bible, which means it was written last. There's a few reasons that scholars believe that. Some of it has to do with language. But then some of it has to do with the fact that Daniel is the only book in the Hebrew Bible that mentions a resurrection and sort of like judgment day, that sort of scenario at the end in chapter 12, Daniel references that. Uh, and that is something that didn't exist for the majority um, of the Hebrew Bible and, and the people who lived in it. 
Um, so the book of Daniel, we think, is a late date because it references things that actually were being learned during the time um, that Daniel was written, and we'll talk about that. So just like Ruth, the book of Daniel is placed in different places in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian Old Testament. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, well, first in the Christian Old Testament, the book of Daniel appears in a group of writings called the Major Prophets. Now, that's not a value judgment, like these are the major and these are the minor, although they are called minor. Um, that's not a value judgment. It just refers to the length of the books. So with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, the book of Daniel is placed in the major prophets. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, though, Daniel is placed in the writings. So there are three sections to the Hebrew Bible. Um, there's the Torah, which means law. There's the Nevi'im, which means prophets. And then there's this section called the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim, it means writings. It's all these other miscellaneous writings. So we talk about Psalms and Proverbs and Job in the Hebrew Bible. You'd also be talking about Lamentations and Ruth, Song of Songs. So Daniel is considered to be part of the writings, not part of the prophets. Um, and, and I think that actually is important because I think in, in the Protestant placement, it, it makes us think Daniel is something that it isn't. And it, it, then we lose sight of the fact that what Daniel's trying to do gets muddled and lost when we want to take it literally. And, and well, we can come back to that as well. Um, there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel, but there are actually other stories that were written that um, reference this character and are part of this book in certain uh, canons. Um, so the additional three stories are found. Uh, if, if you want to read them, you can find them in the, the Apocrypha, right, which is this collection of texts that isn't necessarily, uh, they're not canonical for Protestants, but they, they are considered valuable, like the books of Maccabees, and, the, and, you know, there, and then there are these three other texts about Daniel. One is called The Prayer of Azariah and Song of the Three Holy Children. One is called Susanna and the Elders, and the other is called Bell and the Snake, B-E-L and the Snake. Um, they're fascinating. I'd recommend giving them a look. Chapters 1 and 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. Um, and then chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Uh, and the Hebrew um, altar points out that the Hebrew is not particularly good Hebrew. So it seems like it wasn't the, the writer's first language. Aramaic was, and, and Aramaic was, was the language uh, in Palestine during the period when the book of Daniel was actually written. So that's also what gives it a later date. Daniel is divided into two parts. Chapters one through six are kind of a court history, which gives these, these stories, I would call them parables of Daniel and some other Hebrew children who are in Babylon in exile. Um, and then seven through 12 contains some uh, four apocalyptic visions. And more about that word. The book, uh, we've talked about this, but I think it's so important to keep referencing it. Daniel is an example of apocalyptic literature. It's similar to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. The problem is that lots of people think that this kind of literature is about predicting the future, and that's actually not the case. But that's why the end times racket has made so much money, and people who are continually wrong about when the world's going to end keep making money revising their dates, right? Um, people keep listening to them. Apocalyptic has nothing to do with the end of the world. It, it's more about the end of an age, maybe say the end of an era. Um, the apocalypse literally means unveiling. The author is sort of pulling back the curtain and showing the readers that while things may seem bleak and hopeless right now, and can I get an amen, um, that God is actually at work and God is working for their liberation. So it's written to people in suffering and oppression and persecution. Characteristics of apocalyptic literature include oppression, the context of oppression, 
that they're often angelic beings which interpret visions and dreams. There's a ton of symbolism. And there are all these contrasts between light and dark, good and evil, the present age that's like wicked and falling apart and the age that's to come, which is looked forward to. Um, and, and so I've mentioned this before with Ruth and Jonah specifically, but there are two different contexts for Daniel. There's the narrative context. And what I mean, what I mean by that is it's when the story is set, the setting of the story. And then there's the compositional context, which is when the text was written. So a little bit about the narrative context, and then we'll come to the um, compositional context at the end. Um, the, the narrative context is the, the exile uh, in Babylon. The Jewish people were um, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and were taken into Babylon. This is in the 500s BCE, so we're talking 6th century BCE. Um, and to just at the beginning of Daniel, it sort of sets the scene. In the third year of the rule of Judah's king Jehoiakim, Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and attacked it. The Lord handed Judah's king Jehoiakim over to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the equipment from God's house, from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar took these to Shinar, which is an old way of saying Babylon, to his own God's temple, putting them in his God's treasury. Nebuchadnezzar instructed his highest official, Ashpenaz, to choose royal descendants and members of the ruling class from the Israelites, good-looking young men without defects, skilled in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, conversant with learning, and capable of serving in the king's palace. So essentially the best of the best are taken from Jerusalem when it's conquered and brought into Babylon. And the best of the best of the best of the best are going to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now, in the beginning, we know that some of the chronology is wrong in the sense of who was a king and how long they served and all of that. So this is maybe an indicator that we're stepping into a parable. So the context of the book of Daniel is a period known as the exile. Babylon had come in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and deported the best and the brightest. And it's the, you can find that story in 2 Kings 25. Um, it's the resistance to this attempt. So they take them to Babylon, and the goal is to absorb them into Babylonian culture and indoctrinate them with Babylonian religion, politics, philosophy, all that stuff. So it's essentially about the Israelites are being taken away from their land, and the king of Babylon is also trying to take them away from their culture. It, it is the resistance to this attempt to absorb and indoctrinate that is the center of this, we said the impetus, the thing that is causing the book of Daniel to be written. And so many of these stories are well known. There's so many of them are flannel graphable. Um, and so I want to go through some of the early stories just briefly. We're not going to read them all, but I just want to go through briefly. So in chapter one, um, after what we just read, King Nebuchadnezzar gives um, his sort of his chief of staff some directions to prepare these young Israelites, the best of the best of the best of the best, to serve in his court. One of the ways they're going to do that is they're going to get a, a ration of food every day from the king's table and uh, the, an allotment of the king's wine. And Daniel and there are three others who they're called something different here, but later their names are changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so Daniel and these other three Israelites refuse to eat the food because they believe it would pollute them because it's not kosher. Um, and so they refuse and they insist on going vegetarian. And in the end, um, they sort of do it as a trial period. And in the end, Daniel and the other three are better looking and in better health than all the others. And the implication here is that God, as a result of their faithfulness to keep kosher, God took care of them. Chapter two, we find out Daniel can interpret dreams. And he's summoned by Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and none of his officials 
can tell him uh, about the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar actually, it seems kind of unreasonable. He had all these seers and all these dream interpreters and he, they come to him and he says, I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you what the dream was. If you're legit, you can not only tell me what I dreamed, but you can tell me what my dream meant. And they couldn't, they said, we need to know the dream. We know, so they're, they're, they're not legitimate. These sages couldn't do it. Nebuchadnezzar got angry and decides to kill every sage in Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. But Daniel is able to, he comes before the king and he's able to recount the dream and he's able to offer the interpretation. And here's just a snippet of chapter two. King Nebuchadnezzar bowed low. As a result, Daniel gets this right. King Nebuchadnezzar bowed low and honored Daniel. The king ordered that grain and incense offerings be made to Daniel. The king declared to Daniel, no doubt about it, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries because you were able to reveal this mystery. The king exalted Daniel and lavished gifts on him, making him ruler over all the province of Babylon and chief minister over all of Babylon's sages. So what does Daniel do? Daniel's faithful. He comes up. He essentially does what nobody else can do, and he converts the king. Now, he doesn't really convert the king because the next chapter of the king has totally um, gone back. The, the point isn't the literal nature of these stories. The point is what they're teaching, that they're being written to people in, in the context of persecution and oppression, and, and they're offering a way forward. Um, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden statue. And whenever people hear this specific music play, the people are all supposed to bow down and worship the statue. Now, there are three exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to participate. So there's this big golden statue, and the music plays, and they're supposed to bow down. And they don't do it. Instead, they protest. Imagine, I know we live in such a different world. Imagine today that there was a time when people hear some music play, and there's a prescribed cultural response to that music that maybe you're supposed to take, maybe you're supposed to stand up and maybe, maybe um, a football player decides that because of um, the injustice that is being done to, to people of color, black and brown people of color in my country, they decide not to, they decide to protest. And imagine that the rulers get so angry at them for protesting and demand that they respond. And imagine that somebody loses essentially their, their sports career because they chose to, to kneel for justice. I mean, these stories don't sound like completely out of left field, right? And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego protest. Um, and people vilify them. And there, there's sort of this, the plot in this story that's building here is that the sages are jealous and they're going to try to get them in trouble. As a result, they, sort of the king finds out they refuse to participate. They're protesting. And as a result, they're giving one, given one more opportunity to comply. And when they don't, the king decides he's going to throw them in a fiery furnace. Um, and listen to their response to the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods? And this is the same king who the chapter before was saying that Daniel's God is God of gods. Lord, um, Is it true you don't serve my gods or worship the golden statue I've set up? If you are now ready to do so, bow down and worship the gold statue. I've made, I made you uh, hear the sound of the horn, pipe, zither, lyre, harp, flute, and every kind of instrument. But if you won't worship, you'll be thrown into a furnace of flaming fire. Then what God will rescue you from my power? You do what I say, or I'm going to kill you. And then what God, what God's going to show up in a fiery furnace for you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to answer your, I love this. It's so gutsy and courageous. We don't need to answer your question. 
If our God, the one we serve, is able to rescue us from the flaming furnace of flaming fire from your power, your majesty, then let God rescue us. But if God doesn't, know this for certain, your majesty, we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Would you like, this is guts. You know what? If our God rescues us, fantastic. Even if our God doesn't rescue us, we're not bowing down to your statue. We're not worshiping you. We're willing, we're willing to play this. We're willing to lose our lives over this. And Nebuchadnezzar gets, I mean, this is resistance. And Nebuchadnezzar is so furious. He has the furnace heated to seven times the, the, the level of heat. And it's actually so hot that the people who put the three um, Hebrew boys in, that, that as they're putting them in, they, they are burned. They are, they are killed and consumed by the flames. Just the people who are near it. And to Nebuchadnezzar's shock, when he looked into the fiery furnace, he saw not three, but four people walking around unharmed by the flames. And further, when he brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out, their clothes don't even smell of fire. And in response, Nebuchadnezzar once again proclaims that this God is the God, right? Um, there are other stories there. There's a new king who actually was never really king, um, who is in charge and uh, he sees writing on the wall. Daniel survives the lion's den because rather than abiding by a new law that only the king could be prayed to and worshiped, Daniel continued to pray and worship his God. The theme that keep, keeps emerging from Daniel is this. If you remain faithful, even to the point of suffering and death, God will remember you. You will not be abandoned. Your death won't be the end. Right? That's, that's what's emerging here, is this call of faithfulness. Yes, you may suffer. Yes, you may die. But God will not abandon you. God will not leave you. God will vindicate you. And then the rest of Daniel excuse me, 7 through 12, is sort of the point, the overarching point is that the empires that had oppressed the Jews up to this point and the Israelites up to this point were all inhumane, beastly, and they all ended up going away. In the vision, my favorite part of this story in chapter 7, there's this vision where a figure is introduced called the human one. In older translations, it's called the son of man, literally a human. Um, who is, ends up being seated next to God, being raised up and seated next to God. And this was a central image for the first Christian's understanding of Jesus. Was Jesus is the human one who's been raised up to the right hand of God. Um, so that's the narrative context. Babylon, persecution, suffering. The compositional context, when this book was written, actually is the second century BC. So the stories are set in the sixth century, but it was written in the second century. And so Daniel was set in the 500s, but this text was composed during the 100s, during a very turbulent time that actually threatened the, existing, the existence of the Jewish people. So what happened during the second century BCE? Well, we have to back up a little bit because in June 323 BCE, so June of 320, June, June of the year 323 BCE, something happened that changed the world forever. Um, at the age of 32, Alexander III of Macedon, better known to history as Alexander the Great, died unexpectedly. Uh, Alexander had a massive empire. Uh, and at his death, um, his empire was divided up to four kings, four central kings became in charge. Two of the greatest were um, one named Ptolemy, who ruled Egypt, and then another, Seleucus, who ruled Babylon, and eventually ruled, when the territories expanded, eventually ruled Israel and Palestine. 
the Seleucids instituted a program of Hellenization. Um, so uh, Hellenization is the spread of Greek culture, ideas, religion, language, philosophy, all of that stuff. They introduced this program that everybody in his empire is going to um, become Greek. They're going to take on Greek culture. It's, it's, I refer to it as the Greekification of the world, right? Everything's going to be Greek. And then in this, so let's fast forward. September of 175 BC, a, a ruler named Antiochus IV, who took the name Epiphanes with him. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest. He takes the title Antiochus IV, God in flesh, right? Um, he takes this, and so he definitely has a healthy or a deeply unhealthy self-esteem. He, he becomes king of the Seleucid Empire. In 167 BC, Antiochus orders that an altar to Zeus, the Greek god, be set up in the Jewish temple, and that an offering, um, a, 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 like a, a swine offering, be made to him. Which, um, so it's an, another, an idol in, in the, the temple of God, and an unclean animal being sacrificed to the idol in the temple of God. Um, by the way, in the book of Daniel, he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. It's also used by the writer of Mark. Um, to describe what the Romans were doing. Um, so a lot of people read this as like, someday there's gonna be an abomination of desolation. Actually, it happened during, when Daniel talks about it, Daniel's referencing this event in 167. Um, so um, this ends up being the last straw. A Jewish family known as the Maccabees um, start a revolt. Um, and eventually the Maccabean, Maccabean revolt took back the temple and it, it got rid of the, the empire and they had about a hundred years between 160s, the late 160s and, and the year 63 BCE. They had a period of history of freedom and self-rule. Now in the year 63 BCE, the Romans came in and the rest is history. Um, this period of time, by the way, when they take back the temple and cleanse it, uh, is known as Hanukkah. That's what's celebrated as Hanukkah. And there's some, maybe we'll look at that at some point. There's some really interesting stories around that. Well, let's go back to the book of Daniel. C can you see how this story is set during the Babylonian rule, but it's actually referencing something that Antiochus and the Seleucid Empire is doing. Because you can't criticize the emperor outright, but you can tell a story of and critique another emperor of a kingdom that's long gone. And so Daniel was composed in the middle of this tumultuous, turbulent, uncertain time, and it's encouraging the faithful to keep going to not sell out their convictions, to not give in to the Greekification of the world, but to hang on to their values, to hang on to their traditions, to hang on and not be absorbed and indoctrinated. The, the book of Daniel is saying, do not give up. Do not let fear stop you. Keep being faithful. Keep resisting the brutality and dehumanization of empire. This is all going somewhere if we just keep pushing forward. Which kind of leads me to ask, does the book of Daniel have anything to say to us today? Right? Does it have anything to say? And this is second century BCE. We live in the 21st century CE. A lot of time has gone by. The world has changed many times over. Does this story have something to say to us? And here's just a few of the things that came to my mind. I think one of the questions we have to ask is how do we resist the empire without playing by the rules of the empire? And here's what I mean. If, if in seeking to resist the empire, we do the exact same things the empire does, then we, we've sort of lost our, what might say, moral authority. We've sort of lost our ability to, to offer a better vision for the world. If we just play by the empire's rules, 
if we do exactly what they do, retaliatory to them, then we've essentially lost our ability to offer a better world. It's just going to end up being another empire. It's just going to be another system that excludes. It's just going to be another system that makes the world more fraught, divided, and difficult. So how do we do that? I think Jesus in the New Testament talks about this a lot, right? This is the turn the other cheek. This is, you know, carry the pack an extra mile. This is the love your enemy. It doesn't mean that you don't resist. It means you resist differently. Jesus actually tells his disciples, resist, but don't. And he actually uses this very, the writer uses, in the New Testament, uses a Greek word that means to do not stand violently. Because Jesus actually at one point says, don't resist them. But he means, it literally means do not violently, is a military term, do not violently resist them. How, how do we do this? Well, like we march. We use our voices. If we have privilege, we, we use our privilege, we leverage it to transform the world, to bring a different order, one that is equitable, one that is just, right? How do we, so I think we have to be asking, how do we resist the empire without becoming the empire? How do you defeat um, the monster without becoming a monster yourself? Because if you do, the world isn't ultimately going to be better. It's just going to be another version of the same stuff that keeps the pain going around in the world. How do we resist empire without playing by empire's rules? How do we remain faithful and engaged when it seems like everything around us is falling apart? That's what the book of Daniel is talking about. And, and this last week, in this summer, in this spring, in this pandemic, in this last 400 years, my goodness, the level of exhaustion. The, and I don't know if you, the feeling like there's just nothing we can do. Right? But we should just, we're just going to have to pack it in. There's nothing we can do. We can't change the world. We can't, we can't dismantle white supremacy, white Christian supremacy. We can't, we can't make the world more equitable. That's what the empire wants us to believe. That's what people in power, it's what people who the system works for, that's what they want us to believe. They want us to believe that it can't be different. It's just too hard. There's too much to do. And I think our part of our work, part of our work in resisting the brutality of empire, part of that work is to say, I'm not going to let myself, I'm not going to listen to that voice that nothing can change. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to shake my fist at the heavens. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to use sort of a righteous anger to motivate me to go into the world and do something else. But how do we stay faithful and engaged? The call, that's the call of Daniel. And I think that's what a community like Grace Point is partly here for, to help us remain connected in community, to help us remain faithful, to help us not, right, right, to remain faithful is also not playing by the rules of the empire and resistance of the empire. So how do we make sure we're doing that when, when it seems like everything else is falling apart? I don't know about you, but like, I wake up in the morning and I got in this really unhealthy habit um, over the past several years of the first thing I would do is I would get up and brush my teeth. And while I was brushing my teeth, I would get on my, I would look at the latest news, just wondering what happened overnight, uh, over the, the hours I slept. Did we launch a new war? Like what happened while I was asleep? And I realized that that has been very toxic for me and very hard to remain hopeful when it feels like every time. Every time you, you see a news story, it's something difficult. It's something painful. It's something ridiculous. It's, it's something that is eroding away at the decency and the bedrock of our society. Um, and it's sort of become too like if you find yourself in discussions with, on Facebook with people who are resistant to naming white supremacy and racism as a problem in our country. Like there are a couple of days where the dings on Facebook 
because I made this commitment. When I see it, I'm going to just say, hey, I, I don't know that you mean it this way, but here's what's happening. But the, the little notifications on Facebook, like I, I sort of like when I get one of those now, I'm like, oh, what's this going to be? Like when it feels like everything around you is is just pulling you away from engagement, pulling you away from feeling like we can make a difference, pulling you away from hope. Our work, spirit, the spiritual work of resisting empire also involves taking care of ourselves. It, it, it involves self-care. It involves paying attention to how we feel and not trying to stuff it, but giving ourselves moments where we can express that and we weep and we shout at the sky and whatever it is, like we, we pay attention to ourselves and how we're doing. Because you can't pour water out of an empty well. Um, one of my favorite, excuse me, one of my favorite metaphors um, that, I, that I've learned, you know, being on an airplanes, I never paid attention until Cohen went flying with me at one point. And the, the bit they give you about the oxygen masks is going to fall out, even if, the, even if it doesn't inflate, it's working. And that little line at the end where they say, before you help secure another person's mask, make sure your mask is on. And at first I was like, no way, I'm going to make sure my kid gets his mask first. But the point is, if pressure, if you destabilize and there's no oxygen to go around, you're not going to be able to help anyone else if you're not breathing if you don't have oxygen, if you don't have the resource. So in our work to, to, to go out into the world and transform it and make it better, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to be kind to ourselves. We have to be willing to give ourselves a moment where we just shut down and do the work and ask, like, how, how am I? Sometimes we move so fast, we don't know how we are. We don't know how our heart feels. We don't know. We just don't know. Uh, so maybe, maybe taking care of ourselves is part of being part of resisting the dehumanization that empire can bring. And, and this last thing, how do we remain hopeful when there seems little reason to have hope? Um, how do we remain hopeful when it feels like every indicator around us is indicating that there isn't hope to be had at times? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the last several months who've felt that way. Um, when RBG passed away on Friday, on Saturday, I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a video from Elizabeth Warren and I'm, I'm a huge Elizabeth Warren fan. And so I wanted to watch it. And she said something in the video that struck me. And um, here's what she said. Hope isn't given to us. It's created by us. Hope isn't given to us. There's not like a line we go get in where they'll give us hope. Hope is something that comes from us. It's created by us. It is, it is transformative energy that we send into the world through our actions, through what we do, through what we say, through how we love, through how we give, through how we serve, through how we show up and march, how, through all the things we do in the world. Hope is generated by. And it, it, we need to make sure we are engaging in these things that bring, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Uh, we're engaging in these things that are hope generating that aren't just depleting from us, but that we're being reminded that we're part of a, a bigger story. As we talked about last week, history's headed somewhere. We get to play a role in it. And at the end of the day, when I leave this life, which I hope is a long way from now, but when life is over, what I hope is that you and I will have left this world better than we found it, that we'll leave our children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and 
all of those folks that will leave them a better world, a world where they will have much work to do, a world where justice still probably won't be served for everybody. But they, they won't have to do what we're doing. Maybe, just maybe, we can generate hope that sends us into the world to know that we're going to leave this thing. It is not a matter of if, but when. Right? It is not a matter of if, but when. So maybe part of our work, maybe part of our spiritual work, maybe part of our physical work is to generate hope because we live in a world where people desperately need it. The hope that they're not alone, the hope that their voice might be heard, the hope that they may be seen, really seen, the hope that dehumanization isn't the way forward. That that is something we need to leave in the past. The hope, the, the, the dream that Dr. King dreamed so beautifully and gave his life to realize. That dream is still unfinished. And we are called to be a people of hope. Generating hope, not just for ourselves, but for the world around us. May that be the work we give ourselves to generating hope, resisting dehumanization, resisting the urge to dehumanize the dehumanizers and opening ourselves up to the potential and possibility that maybe, just maybe, change can happen. Mm -hmm.